what you should really do is have watershed states. And so he actually creates a watershed map. So states in the West would have looked more like states in the East. And Congress is like, no, we're not going there. We already negotiated all those borders. And so those are the states and territories of the West. And when Congress did that, they made a decision instead of moving people to where water was, they were gonna move water to where people were and were settling. And so this kind of taps into one of the themes of the book, which is like, there's a lot of optimism around technology and around things that people can do with technology in order to support society. So there's this idea that we'll just kind of continually engineer our way out of particular problems that we're encountering rather than thinking of what is the root cause of the problem. Welcome to Check Your Shelves, a podcast about all things bookish in Utah, where we discuss books, writing, and more. In conversation with our authors, readers, and you, we travel the literary landscape together. I'm your host, Case Johnston, program manager for the Utah Center for the Book, the author of Beyond the Grip of Cranial Synestosis, a medical memoir, the novel Let the Wild Grasses Grow, and Castaway, due out in June 2024. We're recording in Banyan Studios in the Monarch in historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. We are talking with Erica Busemic about her new book, The Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam, Infrastructures and Disposition on the Colorado Plateau. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. And as a little bit of a background, we're doing a lot of these podcasts, most of these podcasts for the 2023 Utah Humanities Book Festival. It's our 26th annual book festival. It, It begins October 1 this Sunday and goes until October 31st. Uh, There are events nearly every day scattered across the state. And Erica will be joining us for two days, October 5th, on the BYU campus for the Red Center at 11 a.m. We will drop all the notes for where she will be in the podcast notes. She will also be joining us on Friday night, 10-6, for, at the Glen Canyon Institute with special guest Andrew Curley, and they will be discussing her book, his research at the Glen, at Glen Canyon. It's going to be fantastic. So we will drop all those notes in the podcast notes for where Erica will be during the Utah Book Festival. And Erica, we're excited to have you. We're excited to have you home, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Utah is home for me. Yeah. Where I grew up. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Where? Like what part? Um, I grew up in Cottonwood Heights. Okay. Uh, well, I was born in Murray and then we moved to Cottonwood Heights. Yeah. And how, um, and you ended up at the University of Texas, how? Uh, well, I went to Brighton High School and then I went to the University of Utah for my undergrad and then I went to Rutgers for my PhD. And then after dissertation research and a postdoc. I, my first job was University of Texas, El Paso. My second job was University of Texas at Austin. And I've been here ever since. How do you love it? I, I love Austin. Austin is really yeah. a fun place to live. It's low key, although it's becoming a tech hub yeah um so yeah it's a lively place well and that's good music that's yeah. a, that's really interesting because that's a lot like orem right the tech hub of utah these days <laughs> um well welcome back and it, it, eric and i had a couple conversations before this and i asked her if, if utah humanities could get her ho- a hotel and she said no absolutely not i'm staying with my family and yeah. i think that you know uh, which is really really good uh, most authors say no please they my family's there so please get me a hotel um so but today we're talking about the new book the Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam. And I'm actually going to read the description of it because this book is so packed with research and history about this part of the state of Utah 
uh, and Colorado and the Colorado River and the Colorado Plateau and New Mexico and Wyoming that I think it's a really good base to start off this conversation today because uh, it is really, really full. So the description of the book reads like this. The second highest concrete arch dam in the United States, Grand Canyon Dam, was built to control the flow of the Colorado River throughout the western United States. Completed in 1966, the dam continues to serve as a water storage facility for residents, industry, and agricultural use across the American West. The dam also generates hydroelectric power for residents in Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and Nebraska. More than a massive piece of physical infrastructure and an engineering feat, the dam exposes the cultural structures and complex regional power relations that relied on the indigenous knowledge and labor while simultaneously dispossessing indigenous communities of their land and resources across the Colorado Plateau. Busemic reorients the story of the dam to reveal a pattern of indigenous erasure by weaving together the stories of religious settlers and indigenous peoples, engineers and biologists, and politicians and spiritual leaders. Infrastructures of disposition teach us that we cannot tell the stories of religious colonization, scientific exploration, regional engineering, environmental transformation, or political deal-making as disconnected from indigenous history. This book is a provocative and essential piece of modern history, particularly as water in the West becomes increasingly scarce and fights over access to it continue to unfold. Bissemek is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas, Austin. She's also the author of award-winning Indian-made Navajo Culture in the Marketplace, 1848 to 1940, and the co-editor of Nation States and the Global Environment, New Approaches to International Environmental History. You were going to say something, I cut you. I got promoted. Oh, there. Oh, actually, full professor. So I should have asked you. About well, full professor is huge. Well, you yeah. should have stopped me. You should have stopped me. I'm glad that you did. She's a full professor at the University of Texas, Austin. And so the reason why I read that intro is because it is that reorientation of how we look at, at, at Glen Kenny Dam, how we look at, at dams as a whole, how we look at the West, how we look at how the infrastructure dispossesses those around it. And, and I think that the intro or the definition of the book really opens up the infrastructures of disposition on the Colorado Plateau. And so I wanted to start there really with this idea, Erica, to define what you mean through disposition because of infrastructure of disposition and disposition because of infrastructure, which is at the heart of this book, which is really, really intriguing. And uh, yeah, just kind of go from there. Like where, well, I mean, you you can take it from anywhere, but I think that definition is what people need to, to read this book. So the big idea of the book about it, I guess the big idea, we could kind of think of the dam as a symbol of dispossession. And the idea for the book kind of came out of, in my field, one of the things people talk about is settler colonialism. So there are different forms of colonization. Uh, so one form of colonization is extractive. Um, a group of individuals from one country move to another country, extract the resources, leave. But there's another form of colonization, which is more common in our country, which is settler colonialism, where people come to the place to stay and their intention is to remove the people who live there to replace them. Um, and so there's a famous scholar named Patrick Wolf. He's actually Australian. Austra Australia deals with similar issues in terms of dispossession. And he describes settler colonialism as a structure, not an event, that it actually has a sort of framework and operates in a particular framework. And I had been thinking a lot about that quote and thinking a lot about the history of the dam and where it fit with my own family. And then I realized like, oh, wait, 
settler colonialism also has an infrastructure to it. And so this book really looks at the ways infrastructure operate on a number of different levels. So there is the fact that um, there are dams and bridges and highways where in order to be built, indigenous communities or other communities are just completely removed. But then there are things that get embedded in our landscape that make those dams and bridges and highways possible, which is the demand for them. And those that demand comes from things like economic growth, from cultural expansion into the region, the laws that are passed, the political climate, et cetera. And so this book really takes Glen Canyon Dam and says, hey, this dam, like if you look at the dam and you look at a map, you see like, wow, it is right next to the Navajo reservation. It's not near or close to, it is essentially right next to, and that is because and in fact, Navajo Nation actually gives the U.S. government land to build what becomes Page, Arizona. Um, so not only is it in you know proximity on indigenous land, or at least parts of it are on formerly controlled indigenous land. Um, I look at how that you know how the dam came to who, like who was petitioning for the dam. Why did we need the dam during the 1950s? Why was the dam controversial? At the time, it was controversial because of you know, the damming of Glen Canyon. So it was environmentally controversial, but nobody really questioned, right, the need for hydroelectric power. In fact, hydroelectric power was not controversial at all during that time period. So I'm just looking at the different registers on which the, how the dam came to be built. So what is the long-term history of the dam and how does it link to the colonization of the region? So the dam was originally finished in 1966. Right. Correct. And they kind of broke ground, what, 1960? Is that? It's a little bit earlier than that. So they the dam was proposed um, in 1954, mm-hmm. although it had been planned much earlier. Mm-hmm. So as early as the 1920s, the Bureau of Reclamation has surveyors and engineers um, on the Colorado River siting potential dams. So by the time we get to the Colorado Colorado River Storage Act, well, can't talk today. I'm um, in the same in, boat. We're, we're in yeah. this together. <laughs> in the 1950s, they've proposed a whole bunch of dams, mm-hmm. right, um, on the Colorado River and its tributaries. Right. And so what I found really intriguing is, is, first off, with your definition of the different types of colonization. I think mostly when we think about colonization, and that's why, again, going back to the overall description of the book, when we think about colonization, we think about, about conquering. We think about, you know, moving in, and it's more of a conquering of people than it is. I mean, it's people and land, but it's both, right? But it's not based on something physical or con- really, excuse the pun, but concrete, right? Yes, um, yes. And in this situation, it was really eye-opening to say, and I hope you can you can expand on this, that a lot of times within, and this leads into my other question about early Mormon settlers, a lot of times within this early colonization, um, with Mormon settlers and with other settlers, because you kind of jump, you begin the book by talking about you are a mix of, you know, different types of settlers that came to Utah. Mm-hmm. And you can feel free to expand them on that too. But there, there, a lot of the early settlers were not there to conquer. You know, a lot of the early settlers didn't feel that it was not to, I mean, of course, lots of the early settlers were there to proselytize and to convert, but a lot of them were not. Some of them were there just to live, to take this, to, to take this, this land grant. But you jump into the fact that it is because they built these infrastructures 
that they were contributing to this 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 type of colonization can you can you expand on how this type of colonization fits directly to Utah and its early settlers. Okay, so um, I know I'll I probably take, asked ten questions. Yeah, that. No, so you kind of did. So that's the stuff. So I'm going to start with the kind of early settlers mm-hmm. first, and then I'll kind of end with my family history, which sure. I think is what you were asking me about. So I think that it's interesting. One of the things that's interesting to think about is. I mean, your reader, your listeners will probably be really familiar with the history of Utah and how the LDS settlers came to be there and the kind of conflicted, uh, the conflicts around that. But one of the things they might not be familiar with, and when you hear it, it's like, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense. One of the things that early LDS settlers did, and others too, like the Spanish did it in Mexico, and you know, this is not right. this is not unique. But one of the ways in which settlement often unfolded, which the LDS settlers did, was they actually looked at where indigenous people were living, where they got their water, how they grew their food, what kind of infrastructure they had, what kind of roads they had, trails, etc. Um, so they actually actively sought out that information. So um, you know how indigenous people in southeastern Utah, southwestern Utah, south central Utah in particular, because we're thinking about where Glen Canyon Dam is, how they irrigated, where where irrigation ditches were, how they built their irrigation dams, et cetera. And they documented that. And then they used that as proof that the region could support larger numbers. And that actually fueled settlement in the region. And so the kind of question that we have to ask is, what happened to indigenous people in that process. So there was the collection of knowledge from indigenous people, and then the sharing of that knowledge actually led to the loss of lands for those indigenous people, the less loss of resources. And those resources could be hunting grounds, or they could be you know, hunting areas, or they could be um, agricultural areas, or they could be access to water. And so that's what the early part of the book, it links the settlement process to that collection of indigenous knowledge and then essentially using that knowledge to support the LDS community and removing the indigenous community. And sometimes that was just done with, uh, you know, we, you know, we just moved here. We don't really, we're not trying to harm the people. And sometimes it was done very intentionally. And there were episodes of violence where indigenous people were violently removed from those areas. So I look at you know, when that happened, why that happened, a number of particular cases of how the how that dispossession evolved, and especially in the case of the Southern Paiute in that region, but also starting to talk about the Navajo as well. And then, then I think the other thing you hinted at is that my family is kind of one step removed, but still implicated, or the way that I write about the ways my family is kind of one step removed, but still implicated in this larger process. So my father's family were converts to the LDS church in Germany in the 1920s, and then ended up immigrating here in the 1950s. And that's a whole complicated history in and of itself. And my, But my mother's family were immigrants from Italy in the 1910s, and they ended up in Sunnyside, Utah, Carbon County, and they got land through the Homestead Act. And so I look at how the government was also involved in dispossessing indigenous people through the Homestead Act, through mm-hmm. things like the Homestead Act. But then people like my family 
got to claim quote unquote free land by you know living on that land making that land um, improving that land was the way that the legislation read they had to live on it and improve it and you know there wasn't necessarily an indigenous presence in that region by 1910 and so i look at the way in which the dispossession the removal of indigenous people even though my family wasn't actively involved in it they still benefited from it and so that's kind of a running narrative through the book or one of the things that i deal with in the book yeah and i mean it's really interesting because we've of the other authors that we will be interviewing this for the upcoming book festival or have interviewed we've almost not purposefully kind of fell on a theme of the west the true west and and paisley rechdahl's book the west and um rebecca claren's book the cost of free land so it's kind of like <laughs> we're having this larger conversation it almost it's almost as if this book fest has taken on a theme of you know it really is it's really really interesting um but this is totally different this is a different take on it because of that the basis of infrastructure as dispossession right. uh, yeah and it's a, it's a different angle into this idea that i learned so much from as well first off please pick up the book especially come to the events but you will learn so much in like four pages and then there's 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 200 and something more pages of those four pages so it's like there's just so much research packed into this book and so it makes me you know when we think about building a dam right we think that that somebody had the idea like you said nobody was pushing back against uh, against that type of, of energy uh during that time but in the book you really jump into and um anything that we haven't covered in the past like what were the foundations? And I, I, I really don't mean all these puns. Concrete foundation. <laughs> I, I really, really don't. But what? Hard. Were, it's it's really hard. It's really hard not to, right? I mean, yeah. Um, but what were you know? I've, I within the book, I found historical, metaphorical, cultural foundations that that led up to the breaking of ground for Glen Canyon, uh, for, for the Glen Canyon Dam for about easily at least 100 years before the, they actually broke ground. Can you explain part of those other sides, the metaphorical side, the cultural side of it all? So we could think about the way the dance stands as a symbol and it, what is it a symbol of? Mm -hmm. And it kind of is a symbol of this idea that the land could be conquered, that the people could be conquered. That um, So if we go back to the history of Glen Canyon Dam, one of the kind of key individuals in that history is John Wesley Powell. And I talk about John Wesley Powell in the book. And John Wesley Powell, like, you know, he navigates the Colorado River and then he goes back to Congress and he's like, you know what? The Western states like don't have these big squares and rectangles in the West. That's not going to work. What you should really do is have watershed states. And so he actually creates a watershed map. So states in the West would have looked more like states in the East. And Congress is like, no. We're not going there. We already negotiated all those borders. And so those are the states and territories of the West. And when Congress did that, they made a decision instead of moving people to where water was, they were going to move water to where people were mm -hmm. and were settling. And so this kind of taps into one of the themes of the book, which is like there's a lot of optimism around technology and around things that people can do with technology in order to support society. So there's this idea that we'll just kind of continually engineer our way out of particular problems that we're encountering rather than thinking of what is the root cause of the problem and how could we, you know, potentially 
I don't know, bring a different mindset to that hmm. issue. And so, I mean, and this is that, you know, by the time the dam is proposed, it's like the heyday of engineering. And so, you know, we're just going to move a bunch of water, collect a bunch of water, feed it to Phoenix, feed it into Arizona, into California to support agriculture. It will generate power for other people, right? So I think the dam is a kind of interesting metaphor for that whole mindset. Yeah. And it says so much about the West too, and people's thoughts of people back East thinking of the West. I mean, was that kind of technology looking at it? Cause you take a whole chapter and you jump into technology and what, what it took to build these dams and, you know, was that technology developed for the West or was that developed that technology transferred for the West and adapted? Um, okay. The, the technology clearly existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, building dams and generating hydroelectric power, right? We see that at Niagara Falls way before we're going to get the dams in the West, um, hydroelectric power. But the scale of the dams in the American West becomes monumental with Hoover Dam, mm-hmm. right? So, Great Depression, it's seen as like, you know, think about what's happening. There's the Dust Bowl, there's the Great Depression, there are lots of people out of work. Um, how is America going to revive itself? And so I think Hoover Dam, it becomes a symbol of like American know-how, ingenuity. We can engineer our way out of problems. We can have these large, massive um, engineering projects that put lots of people to work and that are going to you know, pump lots of water into uh, these dry areas and provide, they're going to electrify the homes, right? Electricity you know, in the 1930s, not everyone had electricity in their house. So, you know, it was going to modernize the country. And so it was sort of seen as a kind of shining, gleaming symbol of American progress. I mean, even they they bring in an architect, they're like, we don't want this just, just to be an engineering project. It, they bring in an architect to show like it can be beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. This is American mm-hmm. beauty um, in the form of technology. And, you know, fast forward 30 years later, not everybody sees beauty in these big dams right so people begin to question like do we need to put them everywhere in all these natural areas you know maybe we shouldn't have so many but it really becomes a fight between environmentalists and recreationists people who you you know want pristine nature and this kind of floyd domini who's the the bureau chief the bureau of reclamation chief you know and he says things like there's a natural order of things and you know god dominates man but man dominates nature and therefore that's what we're doing, right? We're sort of living close to this godly idea. Although Domini was not necessarily a religious man, he's just kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, using this rhetoric. But yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story about how we make the decisions that we make at different times in American history regarding technology. Yeah, it really, really is, and that's something that was was new to me. Um, and you know, having grown up in Utah too, I know Utah is is water. You know, I mean, I sat mm-hmm. in on a Zoom last night with Terry Tempest Williams and the thing that everybody talked, I mean, we were talking about water, you know, we were yeah. talking about life, what it is and the dams that keep the water from the Great Salt, from Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I mean, this, while we've created this theme for the book festival, it really, I, if anything, it is colonization and water rights, you know, and water usage. Mm-hmm. That is based on the podcast. People would think that that is our discussions. Um, <laughs> there's lots of other books out there, but these are really, really important. And they're, they're really, really important right now in Utah's history. I mean, we are coming out of like a, a we're coming out of a 10 year 
multi-year drought. Uh, 2022, 23 was amazing, but the question now we're heading into winter. And so that's, that leads me to my next question of what we've, we've talked about the history and the leading up to the building of the dam, but since the dam has been, since the dam was finished, a lot has changed. A lot has changed water wise and a lot has changed the way in which we view the usage or the infrastructure of having this dam. Can we move forward past the, the build and where are we, where have we come in the last 50, is it 60 years? 60 years. Yeah. yeah. What is the growth um, of it? Yeah. Okay. Where, where are we now in terms of the dams? Yeah. yeah kind of where yeah. are we now and how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I think it, okay. How do we get here is let's start with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, society functioned just the way they expected it to. They built that dam and that dam triggered a lot of growth in the region because suddenly there was a way that people could get water and power. My book builds on a lot of scholarship that's out there. Andrew Curley's scholarship, mm-hmm. you, you know, we're going to talk, we'll be talking with him at Salt Lake Public Library. He's Navajo. Right. Um, that will be a really interesting discussion. Andrew Needham's book on Phoenix um, called Power Lines. If we think about what happened, that dam generated lots of water and electricity. People, you can't really store electricity. So people needed to use that electricity in order for that dam to generate revenue. So that encouraged a lot of, you know, appliances that were not necessarily energy saver, Mm -hmm. energy saving appliances, right? Air conditioning, refrigeration, et cetera, that kind of guzzled up energy that consumers could then pay for that would pay for the infrastructure that was built. And that's, I know I just, that was a, overstatement of that process, but a pretty accurate one. Sure, right. So, you know, that mentality and that mindset, you know, sort of build it and they will come is what happened. And now, right, as those societies have grown and the water level has not stayed the same and energy use has increased just because population has increased, even though we've become more savvy consumers, what are the long-term implications of that? So, you know, it's not just a 10-year drought, it's a 100-year drought. We had one good year you know, what happens when that dam or if that dam could not generate electricity, how are resources going to be distributed and who is going to get them? And I think that that become, that's the hot button issue right now. It's really interesting that you say that if you, it's kind of like the, you know, if, if you build it, they will come. Right. I mean, and I've seen, I've seen statistics about Phoenix, how it was the largest growing city in the United States. Like it, it, it grew by like 60 times from about this, this, this time period in our history. Is there a direct causation between Glen Canyon Dam and other dams and the growth of a city like Phoenix because of what, how you defined it? Yes, pretty much. Andrew and I will be talking about this. I mean, it's, uh, and so like, and just to kind of bring back one of the big themes of the book I mean, Navajo Nation is right there. And how come they don't have mm-hmm. good infrastructure? Right. 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 Um, why is the place that is generating this electricity? A lot of electricity comes from Navajo Gen- or did come from Navajo Generating Station. And that's what Andrew's book is really about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people who are interested in water and energy will really find that in our conversation fascinating. But um, yeah, it's it's sort of, you know, it's really important to consider that relationship and what happens to indigenous people over the course of, you know, this narrative arc, how come resources did not get distributed equitably and how, what are the costs that everyone in our society is now paying as a result of that unequal distribution of resources? Yeah. And that's a great question. And, and yeah, the Salt Lake City Library, um, October 6th at 4 p.m., 
yeah, 4 p.m. at the Salt Lake City Library. We will be talking with Andrew Curley about these subjects with the Glen Canyon Institute, with Erica at the Salt Lake City Library at 4 p.m. on October 6th. We'll put all those notes in the podcast notes. This this time goes by so fast. And, you know, we did talk about infrastructure. We talked about disposition. But I before we run out of time, I do want to ask about how, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning about disposition, but that was hundreds of years ago. Where is the Navajo Nation now? And, you know, where where are their water rights? And how has, where, in what situation has it placed them? And where, what are they thinking? Yeah, um, well, Andrew can, Andrew and I can talk about that a little bit more, but there was just a Supreme Court case where mm-hmm. Navajo Nation was trying to get um, water rights, treaty rights, and they didn't, the short story is they didn't get them. We right. can talk a little bit more about that. Um, so Navajo Nation is, very mindful of its access to water. The average American consumer uses about 80 gallons of water a day. The average resident on Navajo Nation uses eight. And, you know, why is that there's not infrastructure? They're, they're you know, trucking in their water. It's really problematic. So Navajo Nation is really mindful and Navajo Nation leadership is really mindful about water resource issues. And this is something Andrew, as a member of Navajo Nation and the author of this book, Carbon Sovereignty, but also water is a big theme in that book as well. That's something we'll be talking about a lot, I think, during the conversation. And it's really, really important. It's so important to look at, you know, I mean, because even with with your book, we talk about the Bears Ears uh, National Mm -hmm. Monument. And I think when the book was published, it was in a different situation than it is today, um, a little bit. Yeah, I think it was published right as things changed. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That's hard. That's really, really hard. But it's really important to all those all those indigenous nations around yeah. there. And the Glen Canyon Dam just fits right, right adjacent to it. This conversation goes so deep. It really, really goes so deep between the infrastructure of disposition, which I just found horribly intriguing, that even those who weren't trying to dispossess, to be dispossessors, just by creating these these dams, creating these homes, creating these communities along the places where the Navajo Nation or the indigenous people lived were contributing to that dispossession. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, historians, psychologists, um, scholars call it erasure mm-hmm. that, you know, you can just kind of forget that somebody else was there before you. But if you are one of those displaced groups or dispossessed groups, you don't forget that. Right. right. And that's why I'm glad you brought up Bears Ears, because that's why Bears Ears is so important mm-hmm. for indigenous people to, you know, return to come back, possess that landscape that was home, that was medicine, that was religion, that was culture, that was language all of those different things. And so I kind of use that as a, a way to wrap up and think about um, the meaning of land and the meaning of dispossession and possession. Yeah. And a lot has changed so much over the last few few years with, yeah. with the monument. And um, But yeah, but thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Uh, Erica will be here two times in October and I can't wait to meet you in person. I'm glad, yeah, I'm great. glad, I'm glad you're coming home to Utah. She'll be here 10-5 at Red Center on BYU campus. She'll be here 10-6 at the Salt Lake County Library with the Glen Canyon Institute and Andrew Curley to talk about all of this stuff more. So you really really need to join us. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Erica, for joining us today to talk about the new book. There's so much more to learn. I think there's so much more that readers can learn from this book. It is packed with research. The bibliography alone is a book. It's just a fantastic book from Utah native Erica Busemic. 
And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I tried to be a good storyteller in the book. So even though it's packed with lots of research, hopefully it's still accessible for people. It, it absolutely, so thank you, sir. It absolutely thank is. You. And and as those who love creative nonfiction, research-based creative nonfiction, you'll love this book. It really does. It weaves stories. It weaves uh, the author, the author's voice and the history all together into one. So go out and get it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.